From Covenant Shreveport, this is Origins of the Faith. Chapter 4, If the Tiber Floods, the Persecution of Christians. In our last episode, we talked about uh, just kind of the beginnings of the church after the time of the apostles. Um, so we're picking up, you know, somewhere around 70, 80 AD, somewhere in that very end of that first century. And um, last time we talked about uh, Catholic Christianity and the things that marked um, the early church, um, which included that commitment to universality um, or Catholicity. Um, that commitment to orthodoxy, right Christian teaching, and um, and also to that structural model of eldership and oversight within the church known as the Episcopal model. Mm-hmm. So those are all things we saw early on, and we did talked about how the church spread so quickly to all of these different places. But um, Taylor, an, an issue that comes up very quickly for the Christians at this point in time is persecution. Yeah, that's right. And a persecution unlike anything any of us American Christians have ever known before. Yeah, or maybe most people. That's right, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't take very long for persecution to pop up, even in the New Testament. Uh, We know about the apostles spreading the gospel, but we also know about people like Stephen, who was martyred in Acts 7. So yeah. we're, we're pretty early into the book of Acts when we start to see this kind of thing pop up. Stephen would be the first martyr, mm-hmm. right? After after Jesus himself. I right. guess Jesus is really the first martyr. If we're... He's, he's the best. Yeah. <laughs> but but Stephen is is after the time of Christ, the, the first, and very quickly after the time of Christ, the yeah. first person to die for his faith in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... One of the things, just I guess to take a step back as we're singing the praises of Bruce Shelley, one of the things I've been most impressed with is the way that he has written this book. Um, it's a history book, and it's a big one, Yeah, but it's so easy to read. Mm. There, these chapters have a lot of, there's like a story-like quality to it. It's almost anecdotal right. in a way. And so um, the way that he wrote the chapter on persecution had a lot of that in it. And so... It's really interesting that you see, you know, we know about the early church fathers, but we also know about Christians who are sent into the arenas to be eaten by lions. Uh, and the what Shelley really points out is that we see martyrdom become a true witness. And you mm-hmm. mentioned this at the end of our last episode. Uh, but there are stories, he mentions, of actual onlookers who are turning to Christianity because of the horrific events they're seeing unfold and because of the way that these people die. Uh, and so what Shelley goes into in this chapter is really the question, why? Mm. Why persecute Christians for their faith? Uh, Rome, for instance, had many gods. The book even notes that the empire had a great tolerance of other religions, but there was a catch. Mm. For Rome, you were free to do just about anything you wanted with your faith as long as you paid homage to the emperor. And so this is what Shelley gets into as one of the first and one of the biggest reasons for persecuting Christians early on. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, this, uh, I mean, gosh, there's so much stuff here that this makes me think of. One of the scriptures it makes me think of is uh, especially this idea of, you know, that somehow you could be a Christian 
and you could go and kind of pay homage to Caesar and say Caesar is Lord, but really I don't believe Caesar is Lord, right? Like it, and and I think Jesus would say you can't serve two masters, yeah, right? Like you you can't serve God and Mammon, right? Like you can't be equally united to both things. And it does seem to be the case that for the earliest Christians, it was just completely untenable that they would even, even, even dishonestly recognize the Roman emperor as yeah. Lord. Yeah, that's right. And it was, it's actually something that wasn't new by the first century. This, this kind of deification and this emperor worship had been around even when Jesus was walking around during his ministry. Um, but but Rome was really proud of of this peace that it brought to all these nations that it conquered, and so naturally, what you would do is start if you're if you're a um, a culture like Rome with all these different gods, you would start to worship more or less yourself. Mm. So Shelley talks about the spirit of Rome and its gradual deification, and so once you see the essence of your nation as a god, who's naturally going to be the image of that god if not the emperor? So. The emperor becomes Rome incarnate for a while. And and again, this isn't new. We see uh, as early as 29 BC, there were temples to the emperor being constructed. So this is something that Jesus walked into. This friction between, for instance, the Jewish people and the worship of Caesar existed during his ministry. And we see a little bit of that. Um, there was one common denominator across all all of this enormous empire, and that was the title of Roman. So mm, yeah. the worship of Rome and the emperor was trying to become universal as well. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, it really is amazing, and we've talked about this before, but just how expansive the Roman Empire was. And um, the chapter talks about, I think it's the Emperor Claudius, who is who is one of the first to, um, to have sort of this this Roman uh, religion thrust on him where it's like um, w- you need to be the figurehead, not, right. not because you are some kind of actual deity, but because by you not only being this political figurehead, but also being a religious figurehead, it will unite this vast empire that we have. And um, it, it makes me think back to in the Gospels, where even even the coins at that point had Caesar's image on them. And Jesus has that famous line of render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and yeah, give unto right. God what is God's. Right. So so even during the time of Christ, you're you're starting to see, even though maybe this sort of deification, like Caesar as Lord, even though that may not have fully come to fruition yet during Jesus's day you're starting to see some early signs of that happening and and just the image i mean i mean if you if you were to kind of pull that into the modern setting imagine if for every new president you elected that that person's face now was on all of our money yeah. right so rather than kind of it's it's not abe anymore and it's not george washington anymore it's now joe biden right, right. who's who he's he's on every coin and 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 yet also he is this sort of pseudo religious figure. Mm-hmm. I guess some people today do kind of treat politicians in that way, right? Yeah, I po- think so. Politics can become a religion for people. 
um, even though they wouldn't use that language. This is this is a religion not in sort of that um, kind of accidental sense, but in a, an actual formal sense where yeah. there are temples being built mm-hmm. to the Roman emperors at this time. Yeah. And this is running kind of counter to something that you mentioned in the last uh, episode, which is the the Catholicity mm-hmm. of Christianity. The universality. As it began. Yeah. Right. The universality of Christianity. This this movement was able to spread across the entire Roman Empire because of the identity that it brought with it. Mm. This is kind of what this Caesar worship, this this emperor worship, was attempting to do mm. really on the other side of that. Yeah. All of these folks have different, more or less nationalities, different cultures, different backgrounds. They live worlds apart and will never meet each other or see each other, much less see Caesar himself. But if we give these coins out and if we if we force this Caesar, Caesar worship, mm-hmm. one, we can really dig into this this Pax Romana, this Roman peace, mm-hmm. solidify everybody. But two, it makes them all Roman. Yeah. It kind of makes everybody one. So as a citizen, you're expected to pray for the emperor. But then over time, like you mentioned, especially with folks like Claudius, direct worship of the emperor becomes expected too. And then by the 200s, that direct worship is legally mandated. So you're literally forcing every citizen to step into a temple of Caesar one day of the year and proclaim Caesar is Lord. And it's not surprising that you run into some issues when it comes to Christianity. It's like you mentioned earlier. You can't you can't even do that in like a half-hearted or or a roundabout way as a Christian. It's just not it's just not something you're going to do. Um, but one of the interesting things that Shelley points out is wouldn't this have been an issue with Judaism as well? Hmm. Uh, this monotheistic faith that birthed Christianity was obviously present in Rome before Jesus, and it continued after the start of the church. So why are Christians the only ones who are being persecuted with Rome's supposed tolerance of religions if the Jewish people wouldn't acknowledge Caesar as Lord either? And that's, hmm. that's one of the questions that he answers really well, and it's, it's because of this exemption. Uh, the Jews are exempted from these religious, from this emperor worship. Uh, he mentions they, they were free from not only emperor worship, but apparently free from partaking in these different sacrificial meals of the religious cults. And so mm-hmm. this meant if you were a Jewish person, you could still be part of a business whose success was attributed to any number of the Roman gods, and you didn't have to join in these feasts or the worship events of those gods. But that's only if you were a Jew. They had this mm-hmm. exempt status, uh, in Shelley's words, due to their readiness to turn their homeland into a blood-soaked wilderness before they would acknowledge any other deity. Yeah, man, that that really struck me as well. And on on a far lesser level, it made me think of some of the modern expressions of that today as our culture has changed dramatically and has certainly turned away from Judeo-Christian values, um, you you have seen some Christians pop up in the culture in business settings saying things like, hey, I'm we're not going to take part in this kind of business activity because of what it ultimately supports, because yeah. those things are counter to what we believe um, the gospel is. Um, and so this is still kind of happening today, but in all eras, you have people who 
acquiesce mm -hmm. to the prevailing culture and kind of go, uh, what does it matter? What I really believe is this, even if I outwardly say something else, yeah, um, it makes my life easier. You know, I don't have to get hassled. Um, but then you have people who, like many of these early martyrs, say, absolutely not. There is no way that I'm going to burn incense and say Caesar is Lord. Mm -hmm. Like, I would rather die than say Caesar is Lord. I was reading something that Tertullian, um, one of the early Christians, uh, one of the earliest Christian writers wrote, and um, Tertullian wrote in Latin, um, and he was from North Africa. And one of the things that he says to Christians is that if we believe in the resurrection of Christ, we believe in our own also since it was for us that he died and rose again. So his encouragement to Christians, which I think ultimately leads many early Christians to put their lives on the line for Christ, was that it was this true understanding of, say, John 3.16. Death is not death. Mm -hmm. Death is not the end, um, but rather death is like the beginning um, death is is a new journey for me, and it's because of what Christ has done, because Jesus is my hope, and because we know he is capable of resurrection, then even if I am murdered, I believe that I will be resurrected because I believe in Jesus. And so who cares if I die? Right. Who cares if I'm killed? Um, man, that, that was what well, I mean goodness like have you how many christians have you met in your life who truly live that kind of way of thinking hmm. like it's it's incredible yeah that's right and tertullian also is quoted in this chapter as saying we have the reputation of living aloof from crowds mm. and so again this this was a a holistic change this was an actual life change for these christians mm. um by by just going about living their lives, they were they were living so different from especially the Roman culture that everything they did was kind of a silent condemnation. And I think Shelley says that as well uh, somewhere in here. But it was basically your entire life, if you're a Christian, is kind of a silent condemnation of of this host culture that you're in. Yeah. Everything that you do is so different that it's that's going to come out. And so it's not necessarily that you have to do anything wrong, but if you're around these people for long enough, they're going to notice and they're either going to embrace it or persecute you for it. Yeah. Well, and 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 that's my take for a long time has been that that is what the gospel really does. Sure. That the gospel is this polarizing thing that when Jesus said things like I haven't come to bring peace but a sword or I've I've come to pit father against son. That, that that's what he's alluding to is is the fact that the true gospel it, it's either you find it deeply compelling and you desire to embrace it or you're repulsed by it and you don't want to have anything to do with it mm -hmm. I think it's it's far less common that people genuinely have some kind of a middle of the road response to the gospel 
um, if, 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 I, if it seems like I have a middle of the road response, it's because I haven't really considered it, yeah. right? I'm just not actually considering it. So, so it's either deeply compelling or it's not. And I think many of these early Christians lived lives that were so different from the prevailing culture and made decisions, especially in their deaths, because many of them, their, their death is in their hands to some extent. It's right. like, you can, you can get out of this. Yeah, just, just say, say Caesar's Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be done with it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he began this whole chapter by talking about Polycarp. Mm-hmm. I mean, Polycarp is one of what's known as the Apostolic Fathers, this very first generation after the Apostles. Um, there's Polycarp, there's Ignatius of Antioch, there's Clement of Rome. Those are, those are like the big three um, Apostolic Fathers. Polycarp um, was young enough or old enough, I guess we should say, um, that he was actually a disciple of the Apostle John. Hmm. So this is somebody who had a direct connection uh, to one of the apostles and had been discipled by one of the apostles. And um, there is a document uh, from the early church called the Martyrdom of Polycarp. Um, and you could just Google the martyrdom of Polycarp, Polycarp, and it'll pop up for you, and you can read it. But um, it is sort of the story of its of his death. And and listen, when you read things like this, it's not holy scripture, right? Like we're not we're not saying that this is um, go, you know like gospel. Um, right. We're saying that this is a document that comes out of the early church. The same thing would would be true if you're reading any Christian book you picked up at the Christian bookstore today. It's not Holy Scripture, mm-hmm. right? Um, so there are things in that uh, martyrdom of Polycarp letter that seem a bit uh, mythological in nature. They seem a bit like kind of over the top or embellishments um, because they may have been. Um, but we have this account here at the beginning of the chapter where he is in front of the Roman proconsul, and this guy's basically going, dude, I don't want to have to kill you, because <laughs> Polycarp's an old man at this point. He's like, come on, come on, man, just just, just say, say it. Just say what I want you to say. And um, Polycarp makes some quip, and, and the proconsul says, if you make light of the beasts, I will cause you to be consumed by fire. In other words, I'm going to burn you at the stake, man. If you <laughs> Just come on. And Polycarp famously says, you try to frighten me with the fire that burns for an hour, and you forget the fire that never goes out. That's that's what a great line, man. That's powerful because the fire that burns for an hour also scares me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, that's serious. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, this is the mindset. It is this mindset again, you know, with what Tertullian said, it's this mindset of because Jesus was resurrected, so will I be as well. Like mm-hmm. what what do I have to fear? Yeah. In death because death has been overcome by Christ. Yeah. It's amazing. And this is this is getting at really, I think, what is kind of the turning point, um, or what Shelley makes the turning point in this chapter. So what we're talking about are the kind of the reasons for persecuting Christians, and that's just what you touched on is the really the deeply compelling lives that they were living. So it's it's polarizing. We mm-hmm. we talk about this a lot at Covenant. The Christian life should be polarizing. Mm-hmm. You will be compelled or you'll be just so turned off by it that you'll want it snuffed out of existence. And so that's that ends up being the main difference between kind of these these two groups that have that have come from Judaism or you've got the you've got the Jewish people and now you have this Christian church. 
Both of them kind of have the same origins. Both of them are monotheistic. One of them gets a pass on all of this stuff, all of all of this emperor worship and cult meals and sacrificial stuff. One of these groups has a pass, and the other one doesn't and would go on to be persecuted forever because of it. Why is that the case? And what Shelley gets at is the the differences between the early, or not early, but the Jewish church, the Jewish people in the first and second century versus the Christian church. Um, the Christian church was monotheistic, but it was it was also made up of Jewish people, but they were so they were so inclusive and they were so compelling in their lives in opposition to kind of the Jewish faith, which was rather exclusive. They weren't necessarily going out and making converts. I mean, we think of the temple, right? You, you've got the different system of courts and levels of entry that are like rings of proximity around the Holy of Holies. And so you've got somebody like the Gentiles who might come in and they can really only get to the first level. So in a very literal sense, just when you're taking kind of the basis of Jewish faith and something like the temple, converts to Judaism were never really in like the native Hebrew people might be. Whereas... Yeah, yeah. Converts to Christianity were immediately part of the family, and then we're going out and making more converts. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. this was something that was spreading like wildfire. People were flocking to the Christian church. Lives were being legitimately changed. Otherwise, we would not have seen this need for suppressing Christianity that pops up so quickly. Yeah. One of the things that we will see, um, and he mentions it briefly here in this chapter, is that there is this radical inclusiveness with the Christian church, but they are also very much concerned with, I think, I think things like what the Apostle Paul taught when he said in Ephesians that the purpose of the role of overseers and leaders within the church is training and equipping the body for the work of ministry. That's something that the early church took very seriously. And early on... Um, the rites, the sacraments, if you will, of baptism and Holy Communion or the Eucharist are the central components of the church. So when people are stepping into the Christian church as proselytes, like as people who are, are rookies, right, they are not allowed into the celebration of the Eucharist when Mm -hmm. the church gathers together initially. Um, They have to go through um, what we would call catechesis. Um, If you grew up in a liturgical church and you had to go to catechism class, well, that's kind of what we're talking about here. Um, People who wanted to be baptized into the Christian faith at this point in time, um, in many cases, had to go through several years of training before the church would baptize them um, as adults. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there was a a couple things going on there. One was just that desire to truly train people up in the faith, um, but also a desire to really sort of vet people as well. Do you really believe this, right? Are you really one of us? Are you really with us? Because there are plenty of people out here that want us gone and dead. 
Um, and so that was an element of early Christian worship was there was a part of the worship service, if you will, that everybody could be a part of. And then there was a part of the worship service that only baptized believers yeah, it's just could, for us. could be a part of. Yeah. And this is something that Shelley points at. So what we have is, I, th- I think that's the real, or that's one of the real breaking points. Like set the scene. Christians aren't worshiping the emperor, right? They're not Jews, so they don't freely enjoy that perk. They're just doing it because they're not going to, but it's illegal. Uh, They don't take part in the social norms of Rome. They live lives that are completely different, but completely compelling, and their numbers are growing week by week. Mm -hmm. To top it all off, they gather together in these group settings to supposedly eat a meal that includes flesh and blood. Right. So you're an outsider looking in on that, on this group of people that you don't like, and these are the things that you're hearing about. Yeah. That's straight cannibalism. Yeah, they're, they are secretly eating flesh and drinking blood, yeah. and, they, and they only let the initiated exactly. in, into that. So what do you do if you're the government? There's sure. a There's a line from um, Pliny the Younger in the book here in the chapter, and he's writing to the Emperor Trajan in 112 AD to basically ask the emperor, hey, do I kill them just for being Christians? Like, like, is this enough? Do I need a reason? Or I'm under the understanding that they're Christians and we just kill them. Yeah. <laughs> that's, and the answer yeah. is more yeah. or less, yeah, I think that's what we do. One of the other martyrs that um, is talked about in this chapter, and there are these little profiles of faith that pop up throughout this book, is uh, uh, an early martyr in the second century named Perpetua. And who was a 22-year-old girl um, who had recently given birth to a child. And um, what it tells us here is that she was preparing for baptism. So she was a Christian already, but she was going through that process of catechesis to um, prepare for baptism within the church. When she is arrested, um, she is told to recant. She won't do that. Um, She ultimately is baptized in prison. Um, and then faces public execution. Um, And it's just an incredible story. Um, I had heard of Perpetua before, but the way that I really became familiar with her is because there is a a kids series um, that tells some of the stories of the great martyrs Hmm. of the church. Um, And this is, it's called the Torchlighters series. There's an organization called Voice of the Martyrs, um, and I think that's who produces the Torchlighter series. Um, but it's something somebody gave to us several years ago, and um, my kids love it. Um, like So there's basically these little um, short films, cartoon films, that tell the stories of these different people across the ages. They're not all early church folks. Um, but Perpetua is one of them, and so if if... I think it's important that um, not only we be historically rooted, but that we tell stories about people who love Jesus, who have come before us. And um, it's okay for us to tell stories about people who are not, you know, explicitly in the Bible, Mm -hmm. right? These are real people still who um, did amazing things for their faith. Um, and so I would encourage you, if you're a parent, um, that uh, that's a great series. It's it's not like the most well-made cartoon you've ever seen <laughs> before, um, but they do a really good job of telling the story. And, and I mean, some of them are kind of rough, so yeah. you, know, you may want to pre-screen some huh. of them. 
Um, I mean, they are made for kids, but you may just want to just assess whether or not your kid's at a level to kind of handle and process some of what they're seeing. Yeah. Um, but my kids have really loved it, and I think they've gotten a lot out of it and have it's helped them to grasp, I think, that there is a gravity to our Christian faith that is larger than the relatively privileged existence we have mm-hmm. right now. Um, and so that's something I'd encourage you guys to check out as well. Yeah. I'll probably vet it myself because I don't know if I want our five and three year old playing pretend burn at the stake. <laughs> yes, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do think that's pretty cool. But there are some that. other stories that are not quite, um, yeah. quite that serious. Um, and so, so anyway, that's that's something that's out there. Uh, final thoughts on this chapter, Taylor? Yeah. Look, there's one more thing about this chapter that I really like, and it's it's probably the wildest part of all of it is we've gone over what a lot of these reasons for persecuting the Christians ended up being and why we have all these stories of martyrs. But the craziest thing to me was with all of the differences between Christianity and the Roman way of life, there were really no causes for condemnation. The Christians weren't out here doing anything besides just not worshiping the way that the Romans expected them to. They weren't lying or stealing. They weren't mistreating people, abusing them or coercing them. They defended their faith verbally, but they didn't fight back when attacked. They were just, they were in the culture without being of the culture, and that rubbed everybody the wrong way. That is, that was maybe my biggest takeaway and probably the most applicable, I think, in a chapter like this. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. I mean, it, it is, um, it's kind of a perfect storm in some ways for the early church, just in the midst of the Roman Empire, you know, in the midst of Caesar worship. Um, and also, you know, just an environment that is seemingly somewhat accepting of different religious expressions. Um, they, they really, they just double down on the gospel. Like yeah. they really go all in on this is real and it demands the whole of our lives. Mm-hmm. And, and even if we have to die, um, then so be it because Christ has overcome death. So That's right. it's, I don't know, man, it's, um, it's inspiring to me. And um, convicting to me as well, because do I really live that way in today's world? That's a good question. Yeah. All right. Well, let's stop there for today. And um, we will pick up next time as we move into chapter five, um, which tells us all about the rise of orthodoxy in the early Christian church. And we'll see you guys then. Cool. Cool.